0: Hello and welcome to Musicians Weekend, the podcast in which we explore the weird and wonderful lives of those who keep music making alive. In this episode we'll be chatting about recent events in our own lives and in the classical music world, as well as an interview with a special guest. We are three London-based freelancers. I'm Davina and I play the cello. I'm Imogen
1: and I'm a trumpeter. And I'm Olivia and I play the harp. So what's everyone
0: been up to this week? Davina... So, a lot of my practice and music, I must admit, have been on the back burner because of Wimbledon. There's just been so much good tennis on. It's hard to practice, you know, when there's a six and a half hour match on. (laughs) I even had a couple students miss out on lessons in the last fortnight as they were Wimbledon ball girls, which was super exciting. That's so cool. Um, But one of them... Even dropped out of her ABRSM exam, which was slightly disappointing. But I understand, given the chance to do a grade one exam or have Federer's sweaty towels thrown at me in the blazing hot sun, I think I know which I'd choose. Do you know, I was actually a ball girl.
1: Were you really? At Queen's.
0: Yeah, so the tournament before Wimbledon. Oh, cool. When I was at school.
1: And I have to agree, it was the most intense stressful experience it's
0: stressful isn't it my student turned up to school with bags under her eyes and she hadn't practiced and she felt so bad and they're there all day from 8 30 in the morning yeah until but even just the practice takes over your life like
1: the training for it and you have to have <laughs> the whitest trainers ever and before school practicing the perfect role <laughs> and all this thing and it, it was absolutely amazing when we were there yeah. but it was a very long process yeah all the choreography you have
0: to do right like
1: Oh, yeah, ball change. Ball change. Yeah. change. New balls, what was it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> New balls, please. <laughs> and you have to leap into action and see if you can do it in like 10 seconds or something. And yeah. And crouching as well. Crouching what? by the net. Yeah, wow. I was actually always a base, kind of on the corners. Uh, I was too sorry. tall to be a, at the net. <laughs> you're probably more likely to be in the shape. But thing. I was a towel girl quite a lot, so that was quite nice. I touched Nadal's bicep. That was quite fun <gasps> once. Wow. I mean, that sounds quite weird. if <laughs> <kind of, laughs> you're a child. <laughs> I kind of just stroked him as he went past. Everyone was doing it, so I just joined in. It was like, yeah. who is this girl? <laughs> but anyway, wow. the students dropped out of their exams. I
0: can understand Yeah, why. I think it's totally fair enough. Wimbledon does tend to take over this time. Time of year. I do have a guilty admission though. I resigned to watching the first night of the proms on iPlayer two days later in order to watch the first half of the Nadal Djokovic semi final live instead. Sorry, proms, but there's just something about watching live sport. If I know the result, I'm probably not going to go back and watch it. I like watching it live. I like watching live music as well, but you know, thank goodness <laughs> for iPlayer. Um, so, continuing on. Uh, while last episode I admitted to not attending any concerts, wrist slap for me, <laughs> last Thursday I returned to my old stomping ground of St John's Church in Waterloo to watch a South Bank Symphonia rush hour concert. So for listeners who don't know, Southbank Bank Symphonia is a 10 month or thereabouts long program for recent music graduates acting as a springboard into the world of professional music making by participating in a diverse range of concerts and outreach Imogen and I are both alumni of the program, and if it wasn't for Southbank, I probably wouldn't be here in the UK making a career out of music. So I have to thank Southbank for a lot that I've experienced in the last five and a half years. The rush hour concerts are held on Thursday evenings at 6pm, so perfect for those with jobs to pop along to after work. We have jobs. (laughs) Yes, we do have jobs. I mean, like, normal jobs. (laughs) you have to see that Proper jobs. So, perfect for those with nine to five jobs to pop along to after work. But if you're a freelance musician, maybe you'd like to go to the concert before you go off to a gig. It happens. Anyway, it's free, and you even get a free drink upon arrival. And you're doing a great service to the orchestra as they rely on the support from the audience while they hone not only their playing skills but their presentation and public speaking chops as well. This concert that I went to, they played selections with Australian mezzo-soprano Lottie Betts Dean in preparation for their annual trip to Italy for the Anghiari Festival, Woo-hoo! where members of the orchestra really realise what they're capable of doing in some trying circumstances <laughs> at times. It's good fodder for weird gig of the week. Imogen, is there anything exceptional you remember slash don't remember from Anghiari? I'm trying to think. It was two years
1: ago that I was there. I remember a lot of pizza and (laughs) a lot of Prosecco. (laughs) Apart from that, I mean, we did tons of concerts. There's lots of chamber music and they have all these little squares and stages kind of all around this amazing little town. And the concerts are just everywhere. So you can kind of wander around. And Mm. um, I do remember one night, though, we had amazing weather, except for one night when we were doing a concert outside in one of the main market squares and it started raining oh. and their backup plan was to move it to this church at the top of a hill and so we just started playing I think Brahms Symphony Number no. 3 and then it started raining and obviously everyone, all the string players panic <laughs> and Woodwind and um, so everyone kind of like ran to try and take cover and then the whole audience helped to move the orchestra all the chairs and the stands and the instruments up this hill to this church In the pouring rain and um, we were all drenched (laughs) when we got there but we started our Brahms again and it was actually so amazing there's so much energy and everyone was
0: just so engaged and it's really exciting. You do really realise what you're capable of doing in Angiari because you don't get a lot of time to sleep you have to make use of your siestas but sometimes even then you have rehearsals and then just with any other festival you just stay up really late. Angiari was where I discovered Aperol spritzes. You only <laughs> just discovered Aperol Spritz! Yeah! No, I didn't know what they were. And, <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I don't know what I'll have to drink. And then I saw these people drinking these orange things and I thought, they look nice. Oh, they are nice changed. Yeah, game changer. <laughs> Finally, last weekend, I went to a wedding. Not to play for once. And not just any old wedding, but a musician's wedding! Yay! (laughs) I really believe that these are the best kind of weddings, because you can always guarantee top-notch performances, (laughs) both official and impromptu. Honestly, the congregation singing the hymns during the service was a powerful force. Um, And also a very suitably raucous crowd when you get a whole lot of musicians together So the bride and groom were two string players, a cellist and a violinist, and I'd blocked out the day from work a long time ago so that I could attend. However, being a busy Saturday in July, musicians are highly in demand, and another cellist guest and I were relating to each other that we'd both been asked to do the same gig on that day multiple times. I think I'd been asked three times, and each time obviously I (laughs) said no. Then it made me think, when musicians have their weddings, especially if it's on a Saturday in July, and then invite all their museo friends to attend. They've basically depleted the pool of freelance musicians available to work that day. So I think there was a shortage of cellists. Sorry to any fixes trying to find cellists. Uh, because we were all just dancing the night away in a marquee in the countryside. And in true Musicians Weekend style, my husband and I got married last year on a Monday <laughs> in nice. December. So you're more likely to guarantee your guests if their musicians are able to come.
1: What have you been up to Imogen? I've had a busy but fun couple of weeks since last episode. I did a solo recital in Hove and actually it was a duo recital because it was with my lovely pianist, Jen Hughes. I think I often forget actually that it is a duo thing because I get so nervous thinking it's all on me. Everyone's attention's on me. And actually we're both playing all the time. Well, she's playing more than I am, you know? So So I kind of need to remember that actually The
0: attention is definitely shared so that you know everything else the nerves and the excitement is also shared yes Um, Beethoven wrote five cello sonatas and we really shouldn't be calling them just cello sonatas because he actually wrote sonata for piano and cello for all five of those works highlighting the importance of the piano I
1: haven't actually done one of these duo recitals since last year exactly a year ago and i really felt like doing one a year was not enough to make me feel like it was definitely going to go okay so i was really nervous about it but actually it did go really well the only thing that was a real problem about it was that we'd done all the practice we'd done our rehearsals we were all ready to go and then every train from victoria was cancelled that morning (laughs) so it was on bbc news actually bbc breakfast avoid victoria at all costs and all this kind of thing and we were just like oh no so sometimes that happens but thankfully i had the car and jen came to my house and we drove and we actually on the way back had some great chats about musicians lifestyles and kind of talking also about the mental side of playing and how much your mind can work against you especially talking about when you make mistakes and how to deal with it i've kind of talked about this a few episodes ago as well but jen had a great analogy that her husband reminds her of whenever she's feeling down about a performance or something she's not happy with and it kind of ties in nicely with the World Cup as well so I thought I'd say it I hope Jen doesn't mind Um, basically it's that footballers are paid millions literally just to score goals And most of the time they miss. (laughs) So (laughs) we shouldn't worry by the amount that we get paid we shouldn't worry too much (laughs) but obviously we're all perfectionists and we want to get it right but most of the time most people won't notice and actually it's really not the end of the world so I thought it's quite a nice little analogy. I was also supposed to be going on a little holiday last week with my boyfriend but a couple of days before I got offered some work with an orchestra that I'd never played with before and I was really keen to do it. So I took the work instead of the holiday. Uh, we weren't going abroad, and so we hadn't paid for any accommodation either because we were meant to be staying at some family friend's house. But it was just a really tough decision and I felt really bad. But as a musician as well, my boyfriend, he did totally understand and he actually really encouraged me to say, you know, at this stage of your career, you've actually really got to go for these things. If you get an opportunity, you know, you've never played with this orchestra, they don't know that they would want to book you again, so you've got to do the first one so I was really chuffed that I could do it and I can only hope that I would have been as lovely and relaxed about it as he was to me because something tells me that I would have been a bit more upset <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if he'd canceled the holiday than me doing it. So I ended up having quite a crazy time actually this last weekend because I spent Thursday and Friday in Manchester. It was with the Manchester Camerata and we were doing a club night show called Disco Classical with Sister Sledge. Yeah. Huh? That is you know cool. those guys? Yeah. <laughs> ah. Family, uh, which finished at 11pm, It's a late night one. And I thought to myself straight after the gig, oh my goodness, I have a rehearsal starting in less than 12 hours in South London. <laughs> so I went back to where I was staying, got up at 5am and got a train to London on Saturday morning for a 10 o'clock rehearsal for a chamber piece by William Walton called Facade, which is, if anyone doesn't know it, is an amazing piece. I didn't know it before I started working on it. So you should check that out. And then after that rehearsal, I went straight to another rehearsal in central London, uh, which was for a concert that evening of Haydn and Mozart. And then the following day, I had more rehearsals and a performance of the Walton. What I found really interesting, actually, was when I got into London from Manchester on Saturday morning, it was about half past eight or something and i saw so many musicians out and about <laughs> i saw like three really? cello cases different violins i saw a tuba player that i know and i guess everyone's just working on the weekend well it was a
0: busy saturday as, as i mentioned before yeah i mean you wouldn't see me because i was off going to wedding.
1: but it was three different programs three different styles of music within 48 hours And it kind of highlighted to me actually how flexible you need to be um, musically as a freelancer and also organised to try and get to all these different places. I find that the hardest thing, well, one of the hardest things about being a musician, is just working out where
2: I have to be on a given day and how much time I have to allow myself and all that stuff you don't really think about when you sign up to be a musician. I remember listening to a panel show on Radio 4 about logistics and I was so excited I was going to get to listen to this show on logistics and then realised it was actually about how lorries like transport to supermarkets. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, well, practical. I need I need logistical help. But the key thing was that they uh, they unload inside the factory. So I, was like,
1: oh, I can't really do that with a harp. So. And there's definitely a temptation to pack as much in as you can. You know, obviously mm-hmm. we just want to oh. say yes to everything, and then actually you realise, oh, hang on, I literally can't get Physically to that rehearsal do it. or do my teaching as well or, or sleep, whatever else. Yeah. yeah, and actually you sometimes just got to slow down a bit and think actually. Am I going to do the best job I can if I do everything? So, Olivia, what have you
0: been up to this fortnight?
2: So apart from a lot of harp strings breaking Uh-oh. throughout this heatwave, <laughs> include happen? it. Oh, so
0: bad. What are your strings made out of? Cow gut. Cow gut, yeah. Oh so, <laughs> <Right>. vegans. Awesome. <laughs> vegan <laughs> I'm sorry. Beware. I do have two gut strings, but fingers crossed, touch words they haven't broken yet.
2: They're all cow gut. Do um, vegan
1: harpists
0: get upset about that?
1: I've actually
2: I I've never wanted to ask the only vegan half as I can think of because I don't want to upset her. (laughs) Is there no alternative? Yeah, there's nylon, but it doesn't sound as good. It's the sound, the the sound. The sound, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) earthier. Um anyway, they're all breaking in the heat, so that's been a bit of a nightmare. Um including one breaking during a Chichester Psalms that I did uh, in the past fortnight, and luckily I had a lovely harp 2 sitting next to me. And we swapped stools and harps during the performance so that we could carry on. But it was stressful, Does so it make like a really loud twang or something. Oh, it sounds like a gun, a gun, <laughs> really. It was a, it was a big one. There's three three tons of tension on the harp oh, string, yeah.
1: so yeah, on one harp string, yeah, supposedly. And well, how maybe many we'll, strings we'll are on the harp?
2: 47 strings, nice. yeah, count really Charming, isn't it? (laughs) In more exciting news, I have uh, just had a fantastic weekend playing the harp at Wimbledon Tennis. (laughs) Um, I've played there for the past five years for guests of the Royal Box on the women's and men's finals days. And yeah, it's the best weekend of the year. You never feel so special as a musician, having a pass and being able to walk around. Do you get to watch the tennis? Officially, yeah, I'm very friends with the uh, service staff and each year they very kindly sneak me into a, a spare seat That's so awesome. yeah, I don't sit in the raw box. That definitely is not allowed But I I do watch it. Yeah, I actually accidentally made the official raw box photograph for my first year um, so, yeah. <laughs> Did you photobomb? Yeah, photobomb. Oh. Well, I have got the picture and everything. Wow. I was standing behind one of the servicemen watching <laughs> So I changed my tactics the following year for where to sit. <laughs> do you get to meet some cool celebs? Um, they rarely talk to me because obviously I'm not throwing attraction at all, I'm just like, oh, there's a little harp in the corner. Um, but I get to see some exciting people. So I got to see Megan in the flesh this year for the first oh, time.
0: Yes. I saw that she was
2: pretending. Yeah, she was there for Women's Day with Kate. And yeah, they are both as glamorous and beautiful in the flesh as they look on screen and um, there were some nice, attractive men to have a look at. (laughs) We had Eddie Redmayne, Tom Hiddleston, and Cumberbatch, somewhere there. Wow. And Emma Watson, that was very exciting actually on Saturday. And she was as beautiful as you'd expect. It's good fun. It's just a fun weekend and you get to feel very special, which is quite rare as a musician. That's amazing. That's a good gig. Something else I want to talk about today, was, I've spoken about it in previous episodes, how musicians need to encourage each other to go to concerts. And I was at a concert this past fortnight, and somebody said to my friend, oh, what are you doing here? And I just thought it came across really, really rudely. I think they were meaning to phrase it as in, oh, I'm surprised you knew about this concert. But I've had people say that to me several times if they are surprised that as a musician, I'm going to another musician's concert.
1: Is it because it wasn't a harp concert?
2: Yeah, I think so, maybe. I just think it's, we've got to stop with these mm. question. I mean, I think it's a very odd thing to say and non-musicians were probably listening, thinking, what on earth is mm. that about? But for a musician, it's quite common for people to express shock that you're at another concert. So please everyone, If you're surprised to see someone, just say, great to see you. Do not ask (laughs) why the person's there. Top tip.
1: Yeah.
2: And finally, I was at a concert with Imogen past fortnight, and we were having a wine-fueled pub (laughs) chat. And we started talking about the word clang, and I realised that we never really discussed it on this podcast. So we were saying, I've said in a previous episode that I don't like the word and I think that when you ask a friend what they've been up to they should honestly say what they have been up to and not feel worried that they might be showing off. Yeah. That's what the word clang means by the way if anyone doesn't know people can say it back to you if you say that you played with such and such an orchestra and people can say in a jokey way clang. clang. So I was wondering how you both felt about the word Do you think it is just a music thing?
0: It's in the comedy world as well apparently a friend of mine was telling me about this um, I've definitely seen an interview with Dawn French um, and Jennifer Saunders where she talks about the word clang, like, ha ha, you just dropped a name there, oh, check you out kind of thing. Part of my motivation for uh, starting this podcast was just to get rid of the stigma about talking about what musicians do honestly in their lives, because it's, it can be difficult to talk about yourself. It's a lot easier when you're just on the other side of a recording mic. But I always find when people ask me, what have you been up to, it's easier to say, oh, you know, this and that, bits and bobs, because you just don't want to come across as showing off. I mean, you might not even have anything to show off about, but if you can just sort of honestly say what you've been up to and just own it, then that's better, surely, than just saying the same old things.
1: Yeah, sometimes the conversation, though, can be so short, if you see a musician friend you say, oh, hey, how are you doing? How's everything going? And they say, yeah, good, thank you, keeping busy, and say, how about you? Yeah, great, yeah, got lots of things on, but it's all good. Do you think maybe
2: when musicians ask each other, and it's kind of open-ended like that, maybe they just want you to say something more about your personal life? Like, I've been on holiday, or I've been watching a lot of Love Island, or something, you know, Mm -hmm. are they... Really asking about your work. Yeah,
0: maybe they don't maybe want not. to know. But the yeah. great thing about since starting up this podcast is now I'm sure some listeners will uh, relate to this. But people have come up to me and been like, "So, Davina, what have you been up to recently?" And now I can talk about the podcast. Although
1: I feel like when people ask me about what we talk about in the podcast, I'm quite quick to always be like, "Oh, so we kind of talk about you know what we've been up to and stuff." Not really what we've what we've done, but and then I'm like, actually. Wait, we actually kind of do do that. But I'm always quite keen to say, oh, it's not like we're just showing off our own gigs. Because I obviously don't want people to think that's at all what it is. But how
0: else do you talk about the reality of what our lives are like if you don't talk about what you've actually done? It is always a bit annoying when you see people on social media and they just post loads and loads of things.
2: Social media is a really um, tricky one. Yeah,
0: exactly. Because you only see the nice things on social media. And you're... Portraying this kind of image of yourself that you want to put out to the world that yes, you're so busy I mentioned this in my interview with Aaron actually It's you're you're just seeing the nice things It's a little bit like the swan's legs paddling furiously underwater and everyone's working really really hard But on social media you can make it look like it's so effortless and that this is totally normal But it's not the reality. I literally had that the other
1: day that I saw a friend I haven't seen for ages and said oh, how are you doing? I've seen on Facebook It looks like everything's going really well. And I just kind of wanted to say Well, of course it looks like everything's going really well. (laughs) It's Facebook. You know, I'm not going to be like, oh, I've had the worst day. My practice felt terrible. I'm having no work. You know, I'm never going to say that if that's how it is. Going
2: back to the word clang. If it's your friend and you say the word clang, what is that really achieving other than making them feel embarrassed? Mm. Why don't next time you just say, that's great. Well done for you.
0: Good for you, yeah. (laughs)
2: Now for some classical music news, in the past fortnight, British composer Oliver Nusson sadly passed away at the age of 66. Oliver was a revered figure in classical music. He championed young composers and in particular the work of many important female composers. When I was reading tributes to Oliver Nusson online, I came across this video that was posted by conductor Geoffrey Patterson on Twitter and I thought it was too lovely not to share with you all.
0: What's nice about talking to people who write music who are really good at it is it's like talking to people who work with wood or it's like talking to people who make films or it's like talking to people who, who, are, who love what they're doing and love the material that they're making it with. Um, not too many people ask the questions, you know, why make films or my, why make chairs? or why make you know ornamental backs on chairs or something like that and i don't see why we should be asked to say it either the craft of making music it's uh, along with being kind to people to your fellow uh, uh, people it's the most important thing there is The BBC proms have begun. The first night of the proms was on Friday the 13th of July, as I mentioned I watched it on iPlayer two days later, with an all-British program. As a tribute to the late Oliver Nusson, they opened with his piece Flourish with Fireworks. Now as I hail from the other side of the world, I perhaps haven't had as much saturation during my musical upbringing with British music as you (laughs) 2 which includes exposure to Holst's The Planets. Except Mars and Jupiter. I've never played it before um, and never really listened to it, but it was super exciting to watch. It's super exciting to play as well. It's yeah. brilliant. It's so immersive, and just the end of it Neptune. So it's haunting it. with the choir. Oh, so cool. And it was just really atmospheric. The second half of the concert was a collaboration between Anna Meredith and 59 Productions. Her work was called Five Telegrams based on communication from the First World War. This was a pretty momentous and mesmerising piece that as well as a massive orchestra, choir and youth ensembles, they projected illuminations all over the Royal Albert Hall. So do check it out on BBC iPlayer if you can.
1: And some lovely news, bassoonist Amy Harmon, who was our special guest for episode 3, has given birth to her baby girl. Her name is Holly, and she weighed 8 pounds 2 ounces when she was born on Sunday 15th of July. Both mother and baby are doing well. Huge congratulations from all of us here.
2: Now it's time for our special guest. When we were first plotting our dream podcast guests, I have to say that this man was at the top of my list. I'm so happy that John Gilhooley, director of Wigmore Hall, agreed to sit down with me and have a chat about the Hall and his life in classical music. Uh, quick thing to say before we start, I worked at the Hall as an usher for five years while I was studying at the Royal Academy of Music, and that is actually how I met Imogen, because she was an usher there too. And we just I, talked all the time. Yeah, we basically just talked. <laughs> no, no, we didn't. We were very serious. And I um, worked backstage a lot as I love page turning. Uh, <laughs> a very uh, weird Stressful. love. Stressful. But I yeah, it's as close to performing as you can get without actually playing a note. And I'm a sight reading geek, Oof. so I just loved it, especially if someone came in with some legacy. Oh, I was all over that. Oh. <laughs> anyway, I mentioned being backstage at Wigmore and that is why, because I was an usher there. And all there is to say is it was a very hot day, so there might be some road traffic noise because the windows were open, but I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm here in John Gilhoolie's office at the top of the Wigmore Hall's office hub, just across the road from the famous hall itself. John's business acumen is lauded within the industry, with attendance to the hall consistently increasing each year under his leadership over the last 18 years. His work was recognised by Her Majesty the Queen in 2013 when John was awarded an OBE. In 2016, the Sunday Times listed him as one of Britain's 500 most influential people. And just to give those listening who may be new to the world of classical music some context, last year the Evening Standard named John in London's top most influential people in music, featuring his name just below Liam Gallagher and above Calvin Harris. So thank you so much, John, for coming on our podcast. (laughs) That was my little introductory speech that I hadn't sent, sorry. Is that OK? That's fine. Uh, I'd like to start by talking about how you first got into this role. Uh, You'd always sung to a high level growing up and continued singing throughout your undergraduate degree at University College Dublin, where you studied history and political science. You then worked in events and artistic management at the Harrogate Centre before joining London's Excel Centre in the Docklands during its construction phase. Not long after, you were appointed Executive Director of Wigmore Hall at the very young age of 27, before taking over the role fully at 32, making you the youngest leader of any of the world's concert halls. What characteristics do you think helped you progress so quickly at such a young age, and what advice do you have to those starting out in Arts and Events Management now?
3: Well, I I think the most important thing is is relationships. Every job is based on relationships. Doing a job properly is based on relationships. Uh, Relationships at a venue such as this are very complex because they're with artists, with their agents and their their managers, sometimes with external promoters, although increasingly fewer uh, external promoters here. Relationship with trustees, uh, with stakeholders such as the Arts Council, with donors and sponsors, with the media, uh, with the critics and obviously the vital relationship with the audience because I look at each season as kind of an election. You know very quickly whether or not you've been voted back in because they're voting on what you put in front of them. The public react very quickly and vote with their feet if they don't like something. A lot of it is down to personality. Uh, You need to have good business acumen. You need to be able to distinguish quality. Artistic quality obviously is paramount. Choosing good quality staff to have around you is also paramount. But this job, Wigmore Hall, is, is essentially about creating the best possible conditions for great music making and making artists feel comfortable, making audiences feel welcome. So it's just being open to people and open to ideas. You can't just program according to your own taste sometimes you would book things that you don't quite understand why other people like uh, this so much but that's the thing about listening to your public so any good artistic director would book 80 or 90 percent according to their own taste but they must look beyond that too so it's being open being hard working those are the most important things for any aspiring arts administrator and learning how to get on with people Because you're going to have to ask for lots of money to succeed, you're going to have to fundraise, you're going to have to negotiate fees with artists and their managers, you're going to have to have detailed talk around repertoire, detailed conversations directly with artists around repertoire. And if you don't know your stuff, they'll very quickly sniff you out. And um, if uh, you go in front of a board of trustees and you're not able to answer the financial questions, they'll also sniff that out very, very quickly. So there is no room for mediocrity in this profession.
2: You said in a recent interview, perhaps the biggest challenge in classical music that we all face is to continue to make it relevant in the 21st century and to dispel any lingering notions of elitism. What is Wigmore Hall doing specifically to dispel these notions and to keep the hall relevant? And what does the hall do to cultivate a younger generation of listeners?
3: Well, the first thing is I don't think there's a crisis in classical music. That's clickbait, headline grabbers. Internationally, there have never been more orchestras, concert halls, opera houses, fringe events. And yeah, there's never been, you know, if if you compare what was a small hub based around the Austro-Hungarian or the Austro-German tradition, Vienna in particular, 200 years ago, where a lot of our tradition comes from, if you look at what it is now internationally, Um, it's certainly something that's progressed hugely and uh, it should be available to everybody regardless of their social or economic background. There are barriers to entry and we can talk about those. Here at the Hall we have a thriving learning department which underlines and and in a way embodies the idea of this Hall being a Hall for everybody and we work with refugees, with the homeless, Uh, We work at the Cardinal Hume Centre with rehabilitated drug users. We work with people living with dementia, and that's a huge part of what we do. We work with people right across every aspect of society. And our Under 35 scheme, there'll be a huge announcement around that soon, Um, but there are 20,000 seats available here right throughout the season. For anybody under the age of 35, £5 for wonderful concerts and That's completely changing the look and feel, because sometimes you have 200 of those people in in the evening, so that completely changes the atmosphere in the hall, and it's wonderful.
2: You said in another interview, I find it deeply offensive that politicians in the UK run a mile when they see a photographer taking a snap of them at the opera, ballet or at a concert, whilst leaders of France, Austria and Germany are very happy to be visible patrons in the arts we obviously need a huge cultural change for classical music can you envisage a future in this country where a political leader will be comfortable to be photographed at the hall?
3: well it's maybe utopia but you need to get to a situation where the culture secretary position or arts minister position isn't seen as just a a place to park the car while you wait for something better to come along Um, although there have been some notable exceptions there have been some good culture secretaries but that's rare in Germany, the President and the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, are happy to be seen photographed at the opera. Same in Finland, France, same in Austria. That doesn't happen here. We need more uh, visible role models at every level. Just as Sheku Kano-Mason has become a role model um, in the wake of the recent royal nuptials, I think, for for all sorts of people who would never have imagined themselves playing the cello or taking interest in classical music and the fact that we're 12 weeks later or something and he's still topping the charts here and across the pond, as quite something. Um, All that's wonderful, but we need more of it. The fact that when I go to an industry conference, when you look around, it is made up mainly of the middle classes is an issue. Uh, We're beginning to make some inroads on the gender issue. I think gender... Uh, Gender balance is much better in this industry than in some others. It needs some work, but we're getting there. Ethnic diversity needs some work and of course the whole concept of what is diversity because it's not just about ethnicity. It's about disability, uh, sexuality, race, place of birth and diversity of repertoire. I'm all for quotas because there is unconscious bias. Um, I think that we need to populate our staff and our boardrooms uh, in a way that reflects the demographic of British society as it stands. We're nowhere near right on that yet, but you can't do it in a knee-jerk sort of way. You do huge harm to an institution if you just say, we'll appoint this person, this person, this person, because it ticks yeah. a few boxes. It's got to be on the basis of open competition and merit, not box ticking.
2: Just think about the quotas, would you mean, say, for performers here? Is that something halls considered?
3: We're very careful. uh, There's a 50-50 gender balance through the season. That's been very conscious over the last decade. Sometimes it doesn't quite work in each discipline. So uh, if you take violin, for instance, we're 90% female. Uh, If you take piano, it's not quite 50-50. so that's something that needs to happen at grassroots and come through the schools and all the rest. Yeah. Uh, but in the context of a season, if you look at what we do in terms of string quartets, singers and all instrumentalists, it's very comfortably 50-50. Yeah. And the core staff here is now 70% female. And uh, I think that's that's been conscious. And again, it gives visible role models where either... Inadvertently or otherwise, the industry has created barriers to entry in the past and we just need to move away from that. And we have to work day in, day out to make sure that every person, regardless of background, feels that classical music is for them, if they want it.
2: You are often described as a tastemaker for classical music. I know that you start playing the halls concert diary three to five years ahead as you once entrusted me to hold your calendar plan while I was working backstage and you were plotting several years in advance to the exact day. Um, In an interview I read that you start with pillars for the season, so next season you're focusing on Schumann with Florian Bosch leading the song performances and the Elias String Quartet performing his string quartets. Then you have several artists, residences and showcase days on specific composers. And you have spoken a lot in previous interviews about how important it is for you to nurture young talent. How do you keep up to date with new artists and composers in the classical music scene and how do you choose who will go down well on the Wigmore Hall stage?
3: Well, I didn't realise I'd been described as a taste master, uh, or uh, for classical music. Uh, and the thing is, I wouldn't call it. Yeah, I don't think you're so much a taste master as a shopkeeper, because what you're doing is decorating the window in Selfridges, and uh, you're putting on public display what you think is the new fashion for the season. Yeah. Uh, what you think the public actually want? You need to put that in the window. Quite a lot of it and what you think might be good for them without without actually spelling that out and patronising people and saying this is good for you because I think that's the wrong way of doing those things. So in a way it's a selection box, selection across uh, the season. Uh, You have to remember what your core audience want. You introduce young artists when you feel that you won't do them any harm because audiences and critics can be still quite... Unforgiving, and you know, there's no excuse. You're measured against what happened the night before and the night after, and what you know. There's no special pleading for for a debut recital. If you come here for a debut recital or any other significant venue, it's got to be good. Uh, so finding the right moment, telling them, you know, when they want to sing Winterreise at 25, you no, know, you can't do that. Um, that's important. Or if they want to play late Beethoven with a, a few exceptions, with you know, Igor Levitt being one. Uh, we don't really do that so just plotting all of that working out what the audience hasn't heard before for instance uh, recently we revisited Tippett's quartets and and the song cycles they hadn't been heard here for for quite a few decades and we've got a huge Beethoven year coming up in in, in 2020 the 250th anniversary of his birth working closely with Beethoven House in Bonn on some exciting joint projects Uh, And again, how do we reflect Beethoven in that year as a composer? How do we reflect the fact that he was disabled and reach out to new audiences? How do we listen to music, given that he was deaf towards the end of his life? Uh, What does it mean to listen to chamber music as a composer, as a performer, as an audience member? How do we listen better? Uh, How are we not just passive listeners? Uh, The whole concept of cognition and bringing in that year, deliberately bringing in VJR as composer-in-residence, who's a jazz pianist, wonderful composer, teacher at Harvard, um, links to Oxford. Oxford's also twinned with Bond, so there's going to be a huge symposium around the whole issue of musicality. What is musicality? How do we listen? Uh, what is the role of the composer in society today? I sat here recently where three young composers took their bows at world premieres. And somebody who's been coming here a very long time walked up to me and said, well, um, what do they do during the day? Uh, which suggests to me that even people who are avid concert corps don't understand what it means to be a composer. Uh, and I think the public at large certainly don't understand. So the Beethoven year is a huge opportunity for us all to put that out there. So that's the way in which you think you... you you work on various themes you make sure each season looks very different from what worked before so that's why i kind of think three seasons together so that i know that we're not overlapping too much and then alongside that there are dollops of things that audience expect but again brought with fresh interpretations and new interpreters
2: music colleges do try to prepare students for life in the classical world but sometimes the advice we are given may no longer be relevant a lot of students are told to put together concert programs and email their promotional material to concert societies and venues now i imagine the hall receives a lot of emails from young musicians wanting an opportunity to perform here what advice do you have for those performers
3: well sometimes we have 2,000 emails a week from all over the world just in terms of agents and artists and young people writing to us so that's quite something and if people send a cd it will always be listened to and there is a system here of listening and going back if something sounds good but there's a backlog usually of at least six months listening to do and things that are really good stand out immediately make sure that you send your best possible presentation of yourself because you don't get a second chance if you send an inferior recording or something badly recorded that's not going to work that's just as much part of the preparation because all of these things signal whether or not somebody is serious the art of program building is something that you grow into yes you can send program proposals and all the rest but generally very very few artists have that ability until they've done lots of concerts and absolutely write to the music societies perform wherever you can in front of 20 30 people because the more you perform the better you become and even artists who come here for the debut recital you know it might only be their second or third leader recital. It takes a while to get used to a venue to get used to the to use the venue as an instrument to learn its acoustic, its properties. It can take ten, fifteen visits for a young string quartet to master that. So yes, by all means, write to everybody, but make sure that it's well presented. Also know your own limitations. The amount of young musicians that I meet who don't come to concerts who don't see what the standard is, who have no idea of the stamina required to be there for two hours, even with an interval, on an evening, and who think that they are up to scratch when clearly they are not. And had they come to concerts, it might have helped them develop their craft, learn their trade. Uh, You've got to see it live. You've got to put the time in. It's just as much part of your training as your practice and if you're not going to hear your colleagues at college or if you're ushering in venues, which I have witnessed, and not going into the concerts when it's available free of charge to you, um, that to me is a very bad sign. I made a decision at the age of 23 to stop singing because I was watching standards, and it's a painful thing for people to have to do. I probably hankered after a career for another five or six years, uh, even though the decision supposedly had been made it's very difficult when something has been so much part of your life in your training but remember there are other ways there are jobs in administration in in the recording world um, in the digital world where professional musicians you can still get all the joy out of your instrument or your voice or whatever you do but there are other ways to make money in the industry rather than being a full-time musician on the stage so the teaching options the administration options all the other creative options, the huge options around diversity now and creating this diverse audience and learning and education programs. I think it's fair to say that not everybody is going to make it in term, you, you're not all going to be Maxim of, but you could be something else equally significant and equally special and just think about it. Think about what you do best. If you really want to work in this industry and you've got a passion for it and you can show that to people, there will be a place for you at some level in the industry.
0: Tremendous thanks to John for that wonderful interview. Now it's time for our weird gig of the week. Our weird gig this week was submitted by Max Marson, a clarinetist. I really want to make that clear before reading out his gig. He writes, I, along with a few other young freelance musicians, was booked by a big TV company to mime on a new historical drama. We were meant to pretend to play historical versions of our instruments in full 1820s military costume during a ballroom scene. My friend and I were booked as basset horn players. The basset horn is sort of halfway between a clarinet and a bass clarinet. It's not a very common instrument in the first place, So we were already skeptical as to how the production company was going to find two historical basset horns for the shoot. We turned up at 7am at a beautiful estate in Hertfordshire, we allocated our costumes and went through hair and makeup. Following this, we basically sat around until (sighs) 7pm before they finally started shooting our scene. Until then, we hadn't even seen the instruments we were meant to play. Just before we were called, the music producer comes up to us and tells us that there had been an issue sourcing the basset horns, surprise, surprise, but that they had found a great alternative two French horns. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who has a vague idea of what a clarinet or even a basset horn looks like will know that they don't have much in common with a French horn. As we didn't have much of a choice, we agreed to do it and ended up having a great time impersonating actual French horn players pretending to play French horns. (laughs) That's brilliant. (laughs) Thank you so much, Max, for your weird gig.
1: Finally, for some upcoming concerts... I am super excited because I am going to see Jacob Collier's prom on Thursday this week, 19th of July. And it's actually Jacob and Friends. So there'll be performances from Take Six, Becca Stevens, Sam, Amidon and the Metropole Orchestra conducted by Jules Buckley. I think Olivia mentioned this in our last episode, but on Friday this week, 20th of July, there's a performance in the evening at the V&A of a chamber opera by Jonathan Duff called Seven Angels. There are actually two 30-minute performances at 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. So you can choose which time suits you best, and it's free. And our lovely Olivia is playing the harp, so do come along and support. I'm really looking forward to going
2: to the London Contemporary Orchestra's Late Night Prom on Monday the 23rd of July
0: with live electronics. Love a bit of electronics. And I mentioned earlier the Southbank Symphonia Rush Hour concerts, uh, but coming up, if you're in the Tuscany region in Italy between 21st and 27th of <laughs> July, you never know, we have a wide geographical reach. Go check out the South Pink Sinfonia in their prime at the Anghiari Festival. There are a bazillion concerts that this year's 30-odd players play in from orchestral, chamber, solo music, so check that out. You can even slurp on a gelato while you watch them play in the piazza. Gelato. I love that. <laughs> Gelato. <laughs> And then, should any of the players survive their hangovers post-festival, they have a bunch of upcoming concerts in Edinburgh at the festival with Anna Meredith, super jealous, Berlin at the Young Euro Classic Festival, and in London they start a run with the British Youth Opera after the summer, so plenty of South Bank concerts coming up.
2: Many thanks to Chris Rowe, the composer of our fantastic jingle, We hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app. And if you enjoyed this episode, please send it to a couple of friends and leave us a review on iTunes. See you next time. Bye. Bye!